So if you're just joining us, I don't see many of you who are just joining us this morning, but if you are, we're in the middle of a, a book of Philippians, an epistle that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi, and last week we were, we were speaking around uh, chapter 1, verse 27, to the end of the chapter, and there was this beautiful phrase that Paul used. He said, live a, a life, or he's, he's compelling them, he's urging them for the, to live a life worthy of the manner of, of the gospel. To live a life worthy, to live a, a manner of life that's worthy of the, of the gospel. And we spoke about a couple of things. There were just three kind of big ideas that came out. And the first one was that we live as a unified people. And that this was actually specifically in the context of, of this group of, of Christians and Philippians being uh, persecuted, being opposed. And he says when you live unified, you hold up a sign to them of God being greater. And then we spoke about the the quite at length about living in in a faith of the gospel not just in your salvation moment not just in being saved in that moment but the faith that continues to grow and grow and grow and grow as you live the faith of the gospel it's the it's this faith that the gospel produces in us and then thirdly and perhaps for me certainly most remarkably was this really difficult verse around that we've we've been graciously granted that we would believe in Christ and, that's easy to understand, and we've been graciously granted that we would suffer for his sake. And it's this very, this very difficult verse, and we looked at it and looked at how God uses both our suffering and our redemption or our believing in him in order to billboard himself, in order to hold up a sign to the world about who he is. And we, we remembered and looked back on Ezekiel 36 and 37 and what we learned out of there. So this morning we're going to we're going to focus on chapter two. So turn there with me in chapter two, and this is the the title this morning: the beauty of the example of Jesus Christ, or the beauty of the example of Christ. And that's really what I want to focus on for the whole time this morning: is just looking at the gospel afresh and being stunned, just being absolutely stunned by this gospel. It's the most unpredictable, unthinkable story. You can imagine. And so let's read together in chapter 2 and verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice the throwback to last week with the unity. Very similar wording. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we see immediately, we see that there's this very clear call again to unity. Have complete my joy by being of the, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. So there's this very clear call to unity. And then Paul begins to give us these very clear practical life instructions, which to be very honest, when you first read them are overwhelming if you're concentrating when you read them. Do nothing, that's a big word, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you remember a while back I preached on, on, the, on the 
command that Jesus says sums up all the law and the prophets are summed up in just these simple commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and do to others as you will have them do to you. And we focused on that second part, do to others as you would have them do to you. And the genius of what Jesus does in that verse is that he says, you all love yourselves. Even if you hate yourself, you love yourself. And he says, that's the bar. It's just like you love yourself, love others. And it's a similar kind of concept that Paul's pulling through here, where he says that count others more significant than yourselves. Think of them as more important than you. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time here this morning because Lex Lazidis, those of you who have been with us, you know Lex. He's a father in the house to us. He's going to be with us next weekend. Him and Joe are coming through. And he's going to be preaching on this aspect of this chapter, chapter 2. He's going to be speaking on the relational aspect, the unity aspect. But this morning, I want to focus more explicitly. You need to get this. So I'm just doing it very briefly so you understand what it is that Paul's calling us to. But I want to focus on what's sometimes called the Messiah's poem. It's either a poem or a song or at the very least some beautiful prose in the writing that's rhythmic and rhyming in the original Greek. And this morning that's where we're going to, we're going to focus. And I want to remind us as well that the, the under belly of the sermon of this whole series is us learning how to read God's word for ourselves so one of the things I've challenged us to and I hope you've taken me seriously on it is that the section we're reading this morning or focusing on is the one I've asked you to memorize this is what I'd love you to memorize this from verse 3 to 10 it's not that hard even your kids can learn it but it's so powerful to have this stuff living inside of us so from do nothing learn from there do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility and continue with that so what does Paul mean in these in these first few verses is there is there any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy I like to think of it like this is the Pope Catholic is effectively what he's saying is the Pope Catholic is a lion carnivorous He's asking rhetoric questions. He's saying, is there any encouragement from thinking about Jesus? Of course there is. Of course there is. This is one of the things that actually fascinates me is that even people who don't believe in Jesus for salvation still find him encouraging. They still want to follow his ways. They still want to send their kids to Sunday school. In Somerset West, we've got a huge Sunday school at our church there. There's a whole lot of parents who drop their kids off and don't go to church. They just drop their kids at the Sunday school. What is that about? Because we recognize that within the fiber of our society, it's built upon the commands and the teaching of Jesus. When we do justice, it's built upon the foundations of Christianity. You can't deny it. Historically, you can't go back and pinpoint it to anything else. It's based upon the Christian ideas and on what Jesus taught and what God did. So do you get any encouragement when you hear about Jesus? Yes. Do you get any comfort from being loved? Of course you do. Someone in this world seeing you for who you really are and still choosing to love you? That's the definition of marriage. Seriously, it is. That's incredible. That any, that any marriage works is incredible. It's one of the most affirming things that someone knows you more completely than anyone else on the planet and yet still says, I choose you. I love you. 
I'm going to live with you. Well, that anyway, blows my mind. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> and then Paul, after he starts off with these rhetoric statements, he, he goes on to speak about what it is that he wants this Philippian church to look like. He wants them to look a certain way. And he says, I want you to be selfless. I want you to count others as more significant than yourselves. I want you to put aside selfish ambition. I want you to put aside conceit. See, here's another very, very powerful way. When we come to reading our Bible, we need to look for two things. We need to look not just for the imperative, not just for what the command is. So Paul's saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't live like this, don't be like this. But he also gives us the indicative. He says, this is why you don't do it. This is because of, of, of what he has done, because of what he's doing, and because of what he's going to continue to do. That's where we find our strength. And it's powerful that as we learn to read God's word, we don't just look at the commands. We don't just look at the commands like a law book, like a rule book, and try and follow it moralistically or legalistically and have a little tick chart next to our bed where we say, like, did I swear today? No. Give yourself a tick. Did I do this? No. Give yourself a tick. We don't just look at the commands. We look at the heart behind the letter of the law. What is it that God is calling us to and why or how is he calling us to that? Otherwise, we're going to read the Bible like one giant rule book, and no wonder it's so hard to get through. But every command is linked to a reason. Let's read in verse 5 together. And this is where we're going to spend now the bulk of our time this morning. Paul says to the Philippians, have this mind. What's he talking about? The mind he's just been talking about. The one that's humble. The one that's putting others above themselves. The one that's selfless. The one that's not conceited. Have that mind among yourselves. Now, if you like me, the first question you ask is, how? How in the world do you want me? I mean, anyone who's tried to do these things knows how difficult they are. Anyone who's tried to live a life of humility knows how difficult it is. When you're humble and you're proud that you're humble, you're not humble anymore because you are proud. It's like the most difficult, elusive thing to ever grasp. When you try and consider others more than yourselves, maybe you do it well for a day or two days, but then you have a family reunion and you go back to being in your teenage years. You know, you go back to that person. But Paul's saying, I want you to have this mind. And then he says something so powerful. He says, which is yours, this mind that I want you to have is yours in Christ Jesus. Oh, what joy. What joy, because it's ours because of Jesus living within us. It's not ours because we're somehow great. It's not ours because we're somehow able to achieve this mind. It's ours as we lean on Jesus Christ. 
This is a great comfort, firstly. This is a great comfort to those of us who feel overwhelmed with the Christian life. If you feel overwhelmed with spiritual formation and thinking, God, I see that person who's 80 years old and they they look like this and they love you like this. Maybe it's a granny, maybe it's a mom or dad or someone who's ahead of you in the Christian faith. And you say, I see it and it's appealing and I want it, but I've got no idea how to get there. And you feel overwhelmed with spiritual formation. Even the thought of it overwhelms you. This verse is a great comfort for you that it's not based on you. This verse is a great relief to those of us struggling with feelings of inadequacy. For those of us struggling with self-doubt. It's Jesus to whom we look. If you're struggling with inadequacy, that's all right. You, you are inadequate. That'll help you pastorally. <laughs> we are inadequate, but he's not. But he's not. If we're going to base ourselves on ourselves, of course we're going to have self-doubt. But he's not. So it's a great comfort. It's a great relief. But thirdly, it's a warning shot. It's a warning shot to the self-assured, which is me. I'm one of the self-assured. That's a nice PC way sometimes of saying arrogant, (laughs) effectively. And some of us sit and we read that and we think, well, we have the secret confidence that we can achieve the mind of Christ. Yes, we can. And we can do a whole lot more besides if we really put our minds to it. And this, this verse is a warning shot to that personality that thinks somehow you can stack it up and make it all count. The self-assured, the arrogant This is a warning shot to us that it's only in Christ Jesus that we can have this mind. And then fourthly, for those of you who don't know Christ, this is an incredible, a wonderful invitation to the mind of Christ, to having the mind of Christ, that you can come as you are and he will accept you and offer you a life of true humility and offer you a freedom from self-absorption. I know you might not use this language, you might not put it like this, but I'm telling you, if you want a life of meaning, and I know you do, if you want a life of significance, it's a life that's free from self-absorption. You can't live a life completely absorbed in yourself and think that you're going to make any difference to anybody else on the planet. So it's a relief and it's an invitation for you if you don't follow Christ that you can come to Him, those who are thirsty, and He will give you water. He will teach you humility. He will teach you how not to be self-absorbed. But now how in the world can Jesus offer us one, two, three, four? How can he, how can he offer us relief? How can he offer us comfort? How can he, how can he offer us this warning shot against our arrogance? How can he offer us this invitation to come? There's only one way he can do it and it's caught up in this little phrase, Christ Jesus. Sometimes the Bible says that Lord Jesus Christ, but it's that word there, Christ, that means Messiah, that means the long-awaited one of whom all history waited and yearned. He can only offer us these things because Jesus is God. Not a hybrid somewhere between the angels and the Father. Jesus is is God. It says it right here in Philippians 
2 verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we're going to get there in a moment. Though he was in the form of God, C.S. Lewis says this powerfully. He says, Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael. Speaking about the archangel Michael. You know what a revelation this is for some of us? We've been taught since childhood that there's a black dog and a white dog and you've got to choose which one you're going to feed and they're equal dogs and depending on which one you feed, that's the one that's going to kind of win at the end. You ever heard that analogy, anybody, just me? Those kind of analogies or the devil's on one shoulder and Jesus is on the other shoulder and they're like these equal guys and you've got to choose which one you're going to knock off and which one you're going to allow to speak louder in your ear. And, and our whole culture kind of gears around Jesus being on a parallel with the devil. And, and, and as, as Lewis says here so beautifully, he's nowhere near. The devil is a created angel like Michael the archangel but who rebelled against God. He's not omnipotent. He can't be this. When people say the devil opposed me this week, I think you're probably not that important. He might have sent one of his demons, but I doubt he himself was there. He can't be anywhere except one place at a time. This is so profound for spiritual warfare when we grasp this. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael. You see, Jesus is not created. The devil was. Jesus is not just the uncreated. Scripture teaches that Jesus is the creator. He's the one who created our earth. The blue Smurf chairs that you're sitting on. Jesus made the elements for them to make these things. That's the truth. And we are grateful that the school was given new chairs that are blue. This is how John says it in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. But He's not just with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it says this, All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I'm telling you that that is Jesus. But you say, well, how do we know that's Jesus? It just says he. How do we know that's Jesus? Well, then we can go to Galatians 4 is one you can go and look at in your own time. But I'll take you to Colossians 1 verse 15. And it also uses this word he. But it's also speaking about Jesus. And it says he is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, listen to the similarity to the verse we just read in John. By him, all things were created. All things were created. Here it is. All things were made through him. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's just making sure you got the point. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then skip down to verse 20. 
or verse 19, For him in all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Who's the creator? If you're in Sunday school, you know the answer. Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus in John chapter 1. It's Jesus in Galatians 4. It's Jesus in, in Colossians chapter 1. And it's even more obvious in Philippians that it's Jesus. Now, why am I laboring this so much? I'm meant to be in Philippians. What am I doing in Colossians? And what am I doing in John? And why am I making such a point? And you probably say, look, we get it. We know that Jesus is God. I don't know if we do. I don't know if we live like that, number one. But secondly, the reason that I'm laboring it so much this morning is because when we get this, when we get that Jesus is actually God, and then we read the Philippians text, and we see what he does. Not this semi-being, half-God. No, God. When we see what God, Jesus does, it's almost unbelievable. It's, it's, it's scandalous. It's one of the most unexpected stories ever told. It's one of the most ridiculous religions you could ever create if you wanted to sit down and try and create a religion. That a God would send a son who was God as well to die. The story would be ludicrous if it wasn't so precious to billions throughout the ages. So remembering that this is God, as I've been laboring for the last eight minutes or so, I want to read this text again. Let me just clear all my writing there. I want to read this text again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm going to insert some words here. But God emptied himself. But God took on the form of a servant. But God allowed himself to be born in the likeness of men. And God allowed himself to be found in a human form. And then God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul says, even death on a cross. I mean, what? What kind of God does this? A few weeks back when I spoke out of Ezekiel 36, I, I just had like, I had no points that day. I just had one kind of overarching point. What do we do with a God like this? What do we do except stand back and marvel? A good word is gobsmacked. We are gobsmacked. We have, that means you've got nothing left in your mouth. You've got, your mouth is dry. You're gobsmacked. What do you do with a king like this but marvel and worship that God himself would incarnate himself and come and live in our world like that. That's honestly, if you, if you leave just with that beating in your heart this morning, if that's all that beats in your heart when you leave here this morning, job done. Job done. That's, that's, what, we, that's what I'm going for. Let me deal with a couple more things before we close. I don't think I'm going to be very long this morning. In the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing 
to be grasped. What does that mean? What that means is that even though he was God, he decided not to use, he chose not to use his God status to his advantage. Michael Eaton says it beautifully, and I'm going to read a longish story that he writes, but it's, it's so beautiful. And while we on the topic of Michael Eaton, as you know, I like him and I like quoting him, but another, another handle on how we read God's word. One of them I spoke about this morning was that we, we learn how to memorize God's word. Another one that I, I spoke about was that we don't just look for the commands. We look for why God gives those commands, the reason. He doesn't just say, be humble. He says, look at Jesus. Look, be humble because Jesus. He gives us the because. And another handle, my third one for today that I want to give you, is that when you're reading God's word, I find it so helpful to get simple commentaries alongside in my devotions. When I'm busy reading Philippians or reading Galatians or whatever, and I find Eaton's got a series called Preaching Through the Bible. Don't be put off by the, the preaching part. Preaching Through the Bible is one of the most simply written, easily accessible little books. You can buy them at uh, Christian book discounters in Cape Town or Loot or wherever. And it's the most, one of the most helpful tools I have when I come to reading God's Word. So I read it and just read it. It's like, so each, each section will have maybe two or three pages. It's so brief. And written for a third world context, which suits me to the ground. So Eaton asks, he interprets this text to say this. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. He says the son of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, coming in the likeness of human beings, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then he writes the story, and a part of, it's a part of the sinfulness of human nature that we like to exploit situations to bring an advantage to ourselves. Any businessmen in the house? Any businesswomen in the house? Can I have an amen? In fact, everybody in the house, can I have an amen? He says there are people who go to church looking for reliable business contracts or looking for a nice, respectable person for a husband or wife. Hmm. They are trying to exploit or to take advantage of the respectability of the church. Living in Africa as I do, he lived in Kenya, I know that if I take a car into a remote village where no one has easy access to road transport, a dozen people will want to make use of the car. Will you take me to see my brother? Will you transport this bed from the shop? When I'm ready to drive several hundred miles back to Nairobi, people I've never met will appear. Will you give me a lift to Nairobi, they ask. If I say yes to one of them, when the time comes, he will arrive with two or three other people who want to come as well, plus gigantic piles of luggage. Among needy people in the rural areas of the world, and one has to be sympathetic, every car that arrives in the village is a thing to be exploited. Now Jesus had the greatest conceivable prospect for exploiting a situation. He was the son of God. He had immense advantages. He shared the divine nature. But, says Paul, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. Jesus did not attempt to become greater than the Father. And when Jesus became a man, listen to this, he did not exploit his equality with God to come to an easier life than what was the Father's will for him. 
He did not choose an easy human life or wish to come to a position of political power. He did not become a Caesar or a Pontius Pilate. He did not exploit his equality with God to come into a prestigious and honored position. He was not born into a wealthy family. When Jesus became a man, he did not exploit his equality with God to come with any of the radiance of the divine glory. Jesus made a choice. This was his mentality. By voluntary choice, he decided at the point where he became a man not to exploit his equality with God. He made no attempts to prematurely end his subjection as a man under the authority of his father. This is our Jesus. When we read about this Jesus who refused to exploit his godness, if I can say it like that, and then we remember what Paul is encouraging us to do to live with humility, to live with selflessness, to consider others as more valuable than ourselves. Who else can we look to but this God who made himself man? Who wouldn't even allow himself any of the, of the superpowers when he became a man. But who went into being an infant, a child, had to ask questions, didn't know things. God didn't know things in that moment in Jesus. But who did consider equality with God something to be grasped? Well, you know who did? Number one, the devil did. You can go and read in Isaiah 14. gives a great account of how the devil tried to overthrow God, tried to usurp God and was thrown out of heaven. You know who else did? Think about Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. How did the, how did the tempter come and tempt them? What did he say to them? Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to have wisdom like God? Don't you want to grasp for being God? And you know who else does every single day? It's me. Just like my forefather Adam and Eve, it's me. I remember hearing a sermon as a, as a student back in Peter Maritzburg about some, some guy was, was talking about the throne room of God and how we have our little throne and we've put it on like little tricycle wheels. And, and each day we kind of wheel, such a visual picture, I always remembered it. We wheel our little throne into the throne room of God and we sit down and we pick up our little scepter, like our plastic scepter, and we rule our lives. And we want to be God in our lives. Every day we're grasping to be God. Every time we know better than Him. Every time we refuse to obey Him. Every time we make ourselves the ruler and the Lord of our lives. Over our schedule. Over our time. Over our money. Over our marriage. Over our family. Over our fill in the gap. We act as if we were God. And we grasp for that Paul says have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that we can have this mind because of you, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man, that there, when you look at the gospel, that's called the incarnation, right? Christ coming down to earth. Glory, it's coming back. And then you see the incarnation of Christ. First you see the humility of God in the early part of the passage. Then we see Christ's incarnation. Then we see being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see Jesus' life and we see his humility. To any Jewish reader, they would know that crucifixion was the most humiliating way to be killed. It was considered a curse. It wasn't just a death, it was a curse. And the whole time that we're reading this and looking at these different aspects of Jesus, his humility, his life, his, his incarnation, just now we're going to get to some of the glorious parts. We remember that Paul is pointing to Jesus and encouraging us. You this morning, he's encouraging the Philippians, but he's encouraging us 2,000 years later. You live like this. He's saying, don't live selfish ambition. Don't live a life which leads to conceit. Don't look just at your own interests, but live with humility. Live counting others as more important than yourselves. Live looking to the interests of others. And all of this because of Jesus. All of this, he gives us the reason. I want to, I want to just take five minutes and I want to finish off by focusing on the, on the marvel of the gospel. The marvel of the gospel is the most incredible thing. I'll take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. We could name a hundred debaters of the age. Everyone wants to be a debater of the age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. If you could achieve God through wisdom, we'd be working in the law anyway. We'd be trying, we'd be trying, we're trying, we're trying. But we couldn't. So it pleased God that through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. The Jews wanted powerful displays of God in order to believe. Show me. That's why the whole time through the Gospels, what are they saying to Jesus? Do another miracle. Do another one. Do another one. Show us. And the Greeks seek wisdom. What do the Stellenboschers want? I think they want both. I think they want both. We want both of those things. I asked at Alpha a while back, I asked the guys at our table, what would God have to do to prove himself to be God to you? 
Does he have to come cure your friend of cancer? Does he have to make it seem more reasonable? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, we, we preach Christ crucified. Can you, can you hit Paul's tone? A stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness, a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. You see, he's saying, look at this, verse 21. So when we preach, some of them are saved. When we preach, there are some of those who believe. Who is it who believes? Well, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. And we preach Jesus Christ. And most of the Jews, they say that's a stumbling block. And most of the Gentiles, they say that's folly. But to some of them, some of these Jews, some of these Gentiles, to some of them, Christ comes and says, I am the power of God and the wisdom of God. And they see it. And they see it. You see, the Jews would have been sitting there and seeking power. And to them, the crucifixion is completely unpalatable. They cannot fathom the, the, the crucifixion. It's a crazy story. And to them it is the ultimate, absolute, uncategorical proof that Jesus could not be the Messiah. He, he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is coming in power to rescue them from Roman oppression or from whatever it is that they're anticipating being rescued from by his power. And the Greeks... The Gentiles, that's us. We're all about the wisdom and the debating and the knowledge and the reason. And it must make sense and it must, I must understand. And I've got these 10 questions, Pastor. When you answer these 10 questions, then I'll come to know this father of yours. And we're all about the reasons. And I'm not saying that we don't answer questions, but we have this attitude of prove it to me. And when you come with that attitude, the gospel, let's be honest, it's foolish. It's mocked. It's child's talk. It's la-la land stories. You don't really believe that, do you, Luke? Do you, do you? Really? Come on, man. We live in this, like, in the modern age, bro. We've got technology. Oh, technology. <laughs> Science. We understand stuff these guys writing this didn't get. But don't you know, says Paul, don't you know? Don't you know that the foolishness of God is wiser than men? God's folly is wiser than the wisest of men. Don't you know, says Paul, that the weakness of God is stronger than the strongest thing that man or woman could ever put out? The greatest atomic bomb we could ever make. The one that could blow the whole earth to smithereens. Don't you know he just spoke that with a word? For the foolishness of God is wiser than the weakness. Foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, to those of us who believe the gospel has become so precious... It's become so beautiful. It's the pearl of great price. I spoke about a few weeks ago just in passing. When you go and read that parable, go and read it afresh. 
What compels a man or a woman to find a pearl in the, in the marketplace that's so beautiful that, they, that they're willing to sell everything that they have just to have that one pearl? What so compels a man or a woman when they find a treasure in a field, a Roman hoard of money in the field, that so compels them that they go and they'll sell everything they have, everything they have, just to have that treasure? This is our kingdom. This is our gospel. It's become so precious to us. It's become power and wisdom where in the beginning when you first start out, even sometimes when you're first saved, it still seems like foolishness. You're saying, God, I have faith. Something in me says I have faith, but I don't understand yet. It still seems like foolishness. But those of you who've been walking with God for a long time, don't you find that the longer you walk with Him, the more beautiful it becomes? The more stunning the revelations become, the more you realize how true this verse in Corinthians is. Let's finish off. Therefore, verse 9 in chapter 1. Therefore, when you see a therefore, you've got to ask, what's the there, therefore? That's the easy way my brain remembers it. Because Jesus, who was in the form of God, because he did not, did not count equality with God something to be exploited, but instead he chose to empty himself. Because Jesus chose to take the form of a servant or a slave. Because he chose to be born in the likeness of men. And then we saw him. We found him in human form. And we saw that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross because of those things therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name that speaks about Christ's exaltation so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that is still coming. That's the glorification of Christ. Not every tongue yet. Not every knee yet. But I want you to, in your mind right now, I want you to think of the most unlikely person in the world in your mind to come to know this King. To come to admit this King. To acknowledge Him. Paul in Philippians says the day is coming when that guy, that girl, that person, the most hardened of atheists, the most skeptical of skeptics, the most mocking among the mockers, will bow their knee. And with certainty will know and will proclaim with their mouth that Jesus is King. That Jesus is Lord. And suddenly everything will make sense. All the foolishness will, will be seen for the wisdom that it is. And friends, our, our prayer as we read a text like this, our heart's prayer should be, Father, let them see it now. Let my friends, let my mom and dad, let my brothers or sisters, let whoever it may be, my work colleagues, let them see it now. Not then. 
when it's too late. This is our God. This is our King. Man, I, I, I just I wanted to write like a nice outro. I, I just couldn't. This is our God. This is our King. It's, it's unspeakable what He's done for us. And it becomes this burning light in front of us, this joy. And all of a sudden, when we consider being humble ourselves, when we consider thinking about Nathan more than I think about me, and Nathan thinking about me more than he thinks about himself, it suddenly starts to feel like, as we focus on Jesus, as we see the marvel and the glory of what he's done, it gives us hope. This is a practical thing. This is, this is understanding. Remember Wally's alphabet, the Jesus alphabet Bible. That thing's going to haunt us for a long time to come. The Jesus alphabet Bible. But this is understanding the attributes of Christ. And as we stop and we contemplate them, when you find yourself lacking in an area, when you find yourself lacking in grace, look to Jesus. And, and you'll see him full of grace and it will give you courage to have the grace in the situation that you need. When you feel like you're being belittled and you're being pushed down at work and you, and you don't know how to respond, look at Jesus who was silent before those who were accusing him to his death. All you're going to do is lose your job. He was going to be crucified. We look to Jesus. When we think of humility and, and being selfless and these things, we don't hold those things up and we try hard every day. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be humble. You know what will happen. You never will. We hold up Jesus and we say, Father, I'm running after you. Jesus, I want you. I want to marvel at you. And as we do, we begin to see humility growing in our lives. Oops, and there's the pride. Oh, and then there's the humility again. And this is the, this is the practical washing in and washing out of our lives, isn't it? This is where the, the gospel, the scripture, begins to minister practically into our lives. We're going to worship. So if our musos can come up, we're going to stand and just sing some songs together, just three or four songs. And then we're going to break communion together and we're going to be done. So let's stand and warm our hands and warm our hearts, lift our eyes and our our minds to heaven and let's worship our King.